podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. And welcome back to the West Ham Breakdown with me, Jack Elderton, and my mate, Callum Goodall. Um, we'll be talking about, in this episode, a pretty disappointing third-round replay exit to Bristol City, but also looking at some of the positives that came from that game. We're going to be talking about solutions without Alvarez and some of the ways that a new system might open up some interesting avenues for for progression for the team, particularly the second string. Um, and then the, the the meat of the podcast today is going to be looking at strikers that have been linked or, or we think should be linked to West Ham over the what's left of the January window. We think, I think both of us would agree that uh, a forward would be a really useful addition to this group of players, uh, particularly when you look at the game last night, actually, we're recording uh, the day after the Bristol City game and thinking that one clinical or higher level forward in that group of players probably helps the other ones get over the line at the moment. There are some good players in that group. They're not performing at their best level at the moment. If they had one extra in there, I think it would help all of them. Um, Obviously, that's going to mean that someone has to go and I, we'll talk about who we think that should be. I think we've already spoken about it, but we'll reference it again later in this show. But before we get into all of that stuff, I do need to, because I've been a terrible host recently, I need to plug the website uh, and say, please do head over to analyticsunited.co.uk forward slash members. It's practically the only way that we're able to to do this. We, we, we did a little AU financial review over, over the break. And um, yeah, thank you so much to everyone who's still subscribing to that. It's basically keeping the podcast going and um and please if you do enjoy the show and you want it to continue to exist beyond this season because of the costs of getting all the video and and access to all the stuff that we need to to be able to produce particularly episodes like this one um any support for the show would be greatly appreciated and over there there's a there's a sort of pay what you want model so you can send us anything to continue to to produce the pod um cool all right now that that's done I'm going to hand over to just a general thoughts piece on Bristol City, as I usually do, and then we'll break into some of the, the tactics, tactics discussion. So, yeah, Cal, after two games against them, which have been very sort of poorly received by the fan base, completely understandably, third round exit in the FA Cup is not um, what anyone wants. Um, what were your takes on the performances and um, and how do you feel after the result? Yeah, I suppose I'm just, I mean, the main feeling is disappointment, right? I think we've been good in cup competitions for a while. Um, we've been competitive in them. That's kind of Moises' bread and butter. So to come away in the third round against the team that plays in the league below us is, yeah, it is disappointing. Um, I think the performance was probably less disappointing than a Twitter timeline would have you believe, I would say. Uh, I think... Uh, there seems to be a, a difficulty in separating, and understandably because emotions were high, etc. The 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 game itself, the way it played out, was was kind of chaotic, and I think aggressive is probably a, maybe an understatement. Um, but yeah, I think there were there were definitely glimpses. I think one of the big positives, I think, towards uh, the end of the game for me was obviously seeing Callum Marshall come on, who I think looked bright, and I also think. Um, ben Johnson had another pretty good cameo off the bench as well. I thought he came on and looked pretty positive. Um, so, yeah, there were definite things to take away. I think the the shape was an obvious change, and I think that's something that you'll break down in a bit more detail. But, yeah, I think overwhelmingly disappointment was the main feeling, and also disappointment that something that we already know, but the the huge gulf in quality between the starting eleven and, and the squad players um again was was there on display to see and I think that is a consistent <laughs> cause for disappointment, I think. Um uh yeah and, and yesterday was just a glaring example. Yeah, I think the overriding thing for, for all West Ham fans here is is disappointment at going out in the third round against a team from the from the championship. I do think that, that people have generally um underrated uh Bristol City a little bit in the conversation around this game and, and, and possibly also overrated West Ham a little bit. Um 
you have to factor somewhat. And obviously, you don't want to factor these things too much because you, you've got the quality of the Premier League team. You have the quality in the team, and you, and you should be going and taking control of these games and, and winning them. Um, but it's a, it's a huge occasion for for teams from the Championship. Bristol a really well supported club uh, have ambitions to be much higher in the Championship. Should really be in the Premier League, and um, and they're a big they're a big team, and they've got some good players. None of that as an excuse for Premier League players not being able to show their quality. Um, and impose themselves on the game. And I don't think we did enough of that across the two two matches. What I would say is that we still created enough across both games to to win both games. And it really should never have gone to a replay. We should have won the first one. Um, we we let them come back into it in the second half. And, and I think clearly what we've allowed to happen in, in both games is to let Bristol City really make the most of, of short periods of dominance. And, um, and credit to them because ultimately we talk a lot about what West Ham do well in the Premier League on this show. We talk a lot about what David Moyes does well as a manager. And a lot of that is talking about how important spot uh, how important box dominance is and, and ultimately if you're able to dominate in the boxes you can kind of render a lot of the stuff that happens between them irrelevant and and we've shown that on several occasions this season think of the Arsenal and Brighton games where we were dominated between the boxes but we absolutely battered those teams in the boxes and um I think Bristol City just did that to us a little bit um, in the replay. I think they were very effective in both boxes. Last ditch defending, keeper was on fire in both games. Um, defended set pieces really well across both fixtures, which was a bit of a surprise for me um, because of how low their their dual success rate is compared to other teams in the championship. Um, but but it is clear that they haven't conceded really many from set pieces. So I'm not really sure how that 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 works out, but they're clearly well drilled in that area and they showed that. And that's one of our main strengths, uh, which is a problem for us. I thought, you know, Warpress had a lot of opportunities to swing corners in in both games. We had so many across the two fixtures and we didn't really create a, enough from those moments um and then looking at the other end i don't think they really created many good shooting opportunities in the box across both fixtures but they scored um when when they got them so credit to them that's you know you can't do a podcast talking about what west ham do well and then and then not give credit when teams do that against you still um I think a lot of the stuff that we did between the boxes actually was a, a quite a big step in the right direction from what we've seen in other fixtures like this uh, beforehand this season. Because whilst we have come unstuck against teams that have dominated the game in the boxes um, before, Everton is a, is a good example. I've also felt that we haven't been particularly convincing between the boxes. And, and whilst it's absolutely true, you should be more convincing against a championship team. At least we did that. And there were some system, uh, system changes that enabled that to a better degree. And I think that's the next thing to really break into because the biggest problem we've, possibly the biggest problem we've had this season is that when Edson Alvarez is out, the team kind of falls to bits um, without him. And um, and we moved to a three four three with this one. Obviously, huge amount of injuries surrounding it. Even players like Pablo Fornals, who should be playing in in, in this game, was out with a knock. Um, but the three four three for me fixed some of the things that we've seen around the sort of axis of evil in midfield that has been James Ward-Prowse and, and Thomas Suchet when they're partnered together in a four two three one. By playing a three, you shift some of the progressive burden to the wide centre-backs. And if you play Cresswell and Mavropanos in those roles, they're generally comfortable in possession and good progressors. Take that responsibility away from the middle two, although you're still going to have the uh, defensive issues that appear with those two together in the centre of the pitch. You fix some of the in-possession problems that you are running into. And I think we saw that really. Um, We created relatively well. We arrived in the final third pretty successfully on several occasions throughout the game wide combinations were were really good i said to cal before the game it's sort of wilder-esque without fully committing to the bit but if you've got two wide center backs who are comfortable carrying and playing forwards um you know you're able to set your wingers slightly inside in your 3-4-3 and get your fullbacks really really nice or your wingbacks really nice and high um unfortunately Unfortunately, it didn't really come off for us on the right side with Corne and Stufal, but I felt on several occasions it did on the other side with, with Emerson and Ben Rama, most notably or more notably Emerson, doing a lot of really good creative work in, in, in the game. Um, so there were there are some things there to say that in possession there were there were some good things going on. Um, I also think when we're talking about defensive weaknesses with Ward-Prowse and Suchek paired in midfield, uh, the way I felt that we fixed that was just pressing more aggressively and using our press as a way to generate opportunities. And um, I think we did that really well. And, and frankly, we should have 
we should have been 1-0 up having done that right from the very start of the game and and, and Corne has an opportunity to play Ings through with Ben Rama as an, as an additional runner keepers committed that is a nailed on goal if he doesn't overhit the pass and by the way looking at the speed of the pitch throughout the game I mean he's really had to go some to overhit it that much uh, so yeah I think the, the, the press worked well and we, and we we should have we should have scored goals from it really we should have create we should have done better to turn turnover situations into chances and those chances should have been converted when we did manage to create them so some positives to take um but yeah i suppose you loop back around to what you were talking about at the start which is the gulf of quality between the the first 11 and the second and um and how without any of those top top forwards in the front line you lack a little bit of the clinical edge to take advantage of those situations yeah yeah 100 percent. i think the, <laughs> the i think it was just it sums up the night doesn't it that sort of comedy of errors in that in that third minute where we've gone from potentially taking a very early lead with what was a, a nice little chance and then the the three balls overplayed the the hilarity of watching danny ings try and chase it down was not lost on me and it did look like he was running in treacle a bit it's not his strength and to be fair the pass should have been better um but then, yeah, the the, the O'Leary sliding uh, through ball accidental in and then the Mavropanos back pass, it was just chaos. I think I did want to say on Mavropanos, I think he's got a lot of pelters um, for it, obviously. I, I think understandable it, it was a bad back pass. I do think maybe Fabianski could have helped him out a bit by being a little bit further off his line. He was calling quite aggressively for the pass, but he was very close to his touch line. So I think Mavro maybe thought, in that sort of muscle memory-esque shape from when he was playing in a much more possession-based Stuttgart side. I don't know if there's something there and that he didn't think that he needed to put as much on it. Doesn't it excuse him at all? But what I did want to say is that despite the mistake, I do think he actually had a pretty positive game beyond that in terms of helping us progress. I think in terms of passing into the channels and, and helping us progress into the final third, um, I thought he did that very well. Um, I think it's kind of similar to what we've seen for a lot of the season. I think for 85 or so minutes of the games that he plays, he's very good. And then there is unfortunately that sort of those small issues, well, not small because it costs us a goal, but th- those moments of madness that pop up and 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 seem to catch us out. But um, I still I still persist that I think he is a very a very good centre back, and I think he will continue to develop into a good centre back in this system. Um, but yeah, I just I just wanted to give him some props because I think there was some positives to take away from it, and I don't think we should be writing him off as some people are uh, just yet. Um, but yeah, up top, I mean, it was a little bit. It was a little bit dead, wasn't it? Let's be honest. I mean, Cornet, Cornet, first 45, my brother, what on earth? What's going on? I know (laughs) we joked before the pod about how it looked like he hadn't seen a football in months, but to be fair, he He barely hasn't. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah, so so it was just as you would expect. Um, I thought he improved in the second half and he put in a lovely, lovely cross for Suchek, who was unfortunate not to score, and O'Leary again, who I think had a very good game actually in both legs like you said that that save was great um and I thought that was us back in it uh Suchek doing what he does getting into the box as a late arriver um and yeah the ball he managed to whip in was delightful but yeah I think that watching Ings and Cornet uh try and do a job in a in a, in a two-man partnership was um something that I hope I don't need to see again Look, I'm going to be slightly uh, different to you on this. I think I think we did quite a good job once the red card happened. Obviously, it's the elephant in the room. Let's talk about it. Side Ben Rama. That's not how you react to to a championship team, you know, putting the squeeze on and being really aggressive yeah. against you. That that's like the last thing you need to do. I actually think he had a relatively decent first half. I think he the problem for him increasingly is really is similar to what we spoke about um in, in the last pod is that if he doesn't have the the player on the other side if they're not really like firing on all cylinders as a direct presence it becomes his responsibility to you know get us to the final third take on his man create opportunities and probably finish them as well he's yeah. not going to do that he's not an incredible winger he's a mm-hmm. serviceable player and um Maybe that's a bit of a letdown given what fans hoped he would be when he when he arrived, and I would agree with that. And it's somewhat problematic that he's not at least sort of, you know, two-thirds of that package for a Moyes system because your wingers are so important. I mean, the wingers anywhere are really important, but 
with the sort of lack of sustained pressure in the final third, your wingers being able to be direct is quite an important part of sort of functionalizing the approach that we have. Um, what I would say is that some of the some of the positives maybe get a little bit forgotten about, and he, he does quite a good job of retaining the ball in the final third uh, and setting up attacks uh, for us. <clears throat> yeah, I just think with Corne on the other side sort of struggling in that, that doing up Bowen role, it makes it difficult um, for him. And then, yeah, the moment of madness just kind of sums up where we're at with him, where it just isn't falling for him. Nothing's going right. He's making bad decisions repeatedly. Um, and yeah, I, I really do hope that obviously we had a loan offer just before the game that got turned down. I, I really hope we do find a a buyer at a reasonable price in the window because that would provide the flexibility for us to bring in some of the players that, or one of the players that we're going to be talking about in the in the in the second half of of this pod. And also on Mavropanos, I think you know extraordinary levels of excusing uh, on the on the back pass, but yeah, <laughs> I get the point that you're making. He's not helped out by Zuma either, by the way. Who yeah it sort of stands and watches it happening. And if he had reacted a little bit sooner, would have blocked it or would have been in a place to, to defend the, 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 what eventually is an open goal because he doesn't react fast enough. And again, you know, like mobility is a problem with Zuma. It's increasingly, a, you know, a bigger and bigger problem with Zuma. Reaction then needs to be really on point if you can't run really fast. So that don't combine poor reaction time with them not being able to move at speed. Um, mm-hmm. That's a problem. Let's let's dig into some of the the individual performances because you said Cornier and Ings don't want to see it again in the second half. I want to praise the team for how they handled being down to 10 men. I like the fact that we were able to dominate even sections when we were with 10 men. I liked the tactical solutions. You know, we talked about liking what we did with 3-4-3 to create good tactical solutions, put the players in good positions to be able to take advantage um, of the conditions. The players didn't do it. And I think that's very much on the players. Um, mm-hmm rather than the the management team because i think we found good circumstances in the game to to take advantage um and similar for the second half really to to go down to to 10 men to to switch the system um to go to 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 a system that you know is very i would say quite difficult to play often you see teams just go off 441 as the solution to um being down to 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 10 men and and we did that defensively uh, but we we moved Emerson inside uh, and used this carrying a lot for us in, in the second half in somewhat of a four three two, and actually Corne, Corne's the guy I want to give credit to. I also want to say Ings as well because I think it was possibly his best performance in a in a long time uh, in a West Ham shirt. Again, like his upside is meant to be that he's a sensational finisher. He got a good chance and he he overthought it and then fluffed. Uh, a pass across that wasn't really on he's got to be you know just taking those half chances in in the box if he's the kind of player that he's cracked up to be um but i thought his his general link up was quite good he closed down really well he pressed really well throughout the game and corne is the one i wanted to land on as i keep saying um which is that when he was moved into a more sort of striker's role in the second half playing up there with danny ings I thought he looked a lot better. And I said to Cal before we started recording, it's that difference between moving um, from sort of out to in when he's playing off that right side to then playing in sort of a left striker role where he's making runs to the left flank and sort of dragging the centre-back with him. So more in to out. And he looked really good in those moments. And obviously, as you said, it's his cross that set up Suchek's chance. I thought he, he actually had a really good second half performance. We were going to try and land on Corne last, so I'm kind of we've kind of got the individual performances the wrong way around. Um, but I mentioned Emerson, and I want to hand over to you to talk about him, and then we'll we'll, we'll cover a couple of uh, of other players that we wanted to to speak about before talking about strikers. Yeah, um, well, I think I think for me, Emerson was not the man of the match, but certainly our man of the match. Um, I think if we're looking for slithers of positivity then I think once again Emerson comes through uh, and can come away with his head held high I think I think he didn't really do anything wrong um, and I think he was probably our brightest spark particularly in the second half in terms of creativity and helping us progress through carries and sort of again it's it's not something new we've seen it quite a lot in the way that he's very capable of carrying centrally in tight spaces and sort of keeping the ball not glued to his foot that's probably an exaggeration but you know what I mean it does he doesn't look at all like he's worried about losing the ball in those tight spaces and he's he's able to release it quite quickly once a presser does come on to try and put him under pressure um, and I thought that was great and I think yeah one of the sort of moves like you say when we went down to 10 was to put him in this sort of left central midfield role where he he was acting as 
almost a sort of number 10 at times, which, which I think was great. And, and he did a great job of it. Um, but yeah, I think he, yeah, w- was a, was a great positive. And also I think from what we saw at the start as well in that three, four, three, um, I think we've quite often said on this pod about how we think there's a future there somewhere with this three back system, but we don't necessarily have the personnel. We don't have the wing backs at the club. And I think Emerson is showing more and more on the left-hand side that he does actually have the requisite skill set to do that. Um, he's, he's, happy to track back but his his offensive output is so good but on the other side we're just we're still not quite there um but yeah he was he was great i i i completely agree and you were you were going to move it in exactly the direction that i wanted you to which is to talk about comparatively on the other side how sufal performed when moving back to sort of a, a wingback role that he hasn't played quite so much recently he he really struggled didn't he both defensively yeah. and offensively in a, in a in a changed role um and and it sort of becomes clear that maybe if you were looking at the, the fullback unit you you could possibly tr- i would be trying to find a way to renew johnson maybe seeing him as more of a left back Cresswell moves on you've got emerson and johnson as your as your left back options sufal as your first choice right back in a back four and then another right back who's more capable as a wing back and more of an offensive fullback on the right side maybe is the way to look at recruiting now in the fullback positions particularly on the evidence of this of this game yeah yeah i completely agree and i think it's uh, i think johnson's renewal is something that i would be prioritizing not not just because he's um, yeah, like you say, a very serviceable option at left back, but also I think, as I said earlier, when he came on at right back and he looked solid there again. Um, and yeah, I just don't see, I don't see why he's, I, I don't know if the club think he is or isn't deserving, but for me, the performances he keeps turning in, when you add in the homegrown value and all that sort of stuff, I just think it, that needs to be something that we sort out ASAP um, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Contract negotiations. That's what we're witnessing at the moment. He's getting minutes to prove that he's got the minutes to stay. And he's now putting in some of his best performances to prove that he's deserving of the mega contract that um, he's demanding. So it'd be interesting to see how how that plays out over the course of the rest of this window. Um, Obviously, there were a couple of of hints of potentially uh, clubs being interested in him. yeah, I just echo what Cal says. Let's let's get him tied down because there's no reason for a homegrown player who's come through the academy to move on when they're a good squad player. That's what they should be most of the time. Like you're not going to have Declan Rice coming through the academy every time. Uh, kudos to um, George Clayton who tweeted this earlier. Like not every academy player is going to be a Declan Rice. You need to be able to make use of the players that you bring through that are fine Premier League players. And that's that's what, if you can do it, should be filling your kind of your 20 to 25 area of the squad when you're a team like West Ham. You want to have a, a, a cast of young players who get regular-ish minutes and can fill in here and there. And Johnson is definitely definitely one of those and, and for that reason should be someone that's sticking around. Um, and speaking of youth players and, and how fans respond to youth players, because Johnson is one player that's got a lot of pelters, very similar to Divine Obama. Ten minutes in this game, I thought the response from certain individuals in the fan base was pathetic like just pathetic there's no excuse for it the young player coming on in incredibly difficult circumstances he lost the ball twice and um and then people are saying he's never going to make it he's actually shit and and should be a league one team i thought that was just really a depressing indication of the cognitive dissonance between a fan base that is demanding more minutes for youth players but has absolutely zero patience with anyone that plays in the team um just really disappointing yeah it's just shit and dumb like yeah i I, yeah i don't want to give too much airtime to it because i think it is just stupid but like he came on we're down to 10 men we're chasing a game it's very hostile we're away from home it's been a proper scrap bordering on a fight um and you're you're throwing him on in circumstances that you probably would rather you didn't have to throw him on in but you're just kind of rolling the dice um and because he didn't come on score an equalizer or a winner and like you say lost the ball a couple of times everyone's now decided that he's he's never going to make it blah 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 um failing to acknowledge the fact that for the 80 minutes beforehand the two strikers that are on over 100 grand a week each also failed to do anything against a championship defense so to suggest that he's never going to have a career 
is just dumb because you've got players that have had very, very good careers at the top of the game who have also failed to make anything happen on that day. So I just think, yeah, like you say, cognitive dissonance is the uh, is the best way to put it. And I think, yeah, it, it, it's particularly frustrating when everyone's saying, we want more youth, we want more youth, and then uh, they just slag them off as soon as they play. Um, I don't think it helped that Marshall came on and actually looked very bright because I think that gave everyone a stick to beat Mbama with, but that doesn't make it okay. Yeah, I completely agree. Credit to Marshall, who did really well when he came on. Um, but I think just to wrap this up and to wrap up our conversation on Bristol City, we've got a really talented crop of young players, one of the most talented crops coming through in in, in a very long time at West Ham. And um, and when you promote those players to senior football, it's a bit of a roll of the dice how they'll they'll perform, how they'll integrate. And it's difficult. And that there is bound to be a level of kind of, um, I don't know, uh, oscillation between performances where they potentially look more comfortable and performances where they really struggle. And people forget that when Declan Rice first came into the team, he dropped stinkers from, mm-hmm. from time to time. When he first arrived in the team, he was getting subbed off in first half, so at half time. Um, I remember him uh, being solely responsible for a goal that we conceded when he was playing uh, centre-back in a back three and just ducked under a cross instead of having <laughs> it away. It's like one of those moments where it's just like completely doesn't make any sense for a senior pro, but he's a youngster. Like these are first appearances in senior football. They're going to make mistakes and I, you have to stick with them through that. You're not going to have a, 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 you know, a group of youngsters that comes through and go on to be really special. If the minute they come on the pitch, everyone's baying for blood and saying you're nowhere near good enough. You've got to give them time, be patient with them and back them through the difficult moments of it. Whether you think they should be getting minutes for West Ham, whether you think they should be going out on loan and developing uh, uh, other clubs, show patience with these guys because they've been incredible at youth level. They are more than deserving of the opportunities that they're getting, whether that be good loans credit, you know, Gideon Kuru has just got himself a really good loan and I hope he does really well on that loan, whether it's that or whether they're getting their opportunities in the first team, like Scarls has previously and obviously involved in the Bristol city game or Marshall and Mabama coming on in that fixture. Um, yeah, please just back our kids <laughs> and be nice. Um, there's just no need for it. Let's talk about strikers. Mbama and Marshall are coming through, and I hope they're going to be really good strikers for West Ham. But um, there's a gap between uh, Antonio and Ings and where they are, and what stage of the career uh, their careers they're at, and um, and the players that we have coming through in the number nine position. And uh, therefore, it, it definitely needs to be filled. It's been a long, long running issue at West Ham. Um, how to sign a striker, whether we do sign a striker, the, the striker curse, because whoever comes in never performs. Um, so let's let's talk about some of the conditions first, because I think we have to address this slightly differently to how we might have before, which is just kind of who's available on the market and and let's get the best possible player. I think we do need to talk about the conditions and why some of these players have previously failed at West Ham and and good players, by the way, have have failed at West Ham in the number nine role. And I think the, 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 the entry point for that discussion is the difference really between players who can make good conditions better and players who can be transformative in difficult circumstances. And I think a lot of what you see with strikers at West Ham who have performed really, really well under David Moyes, I'm thinking Marco Arnautovic and, and Mikel Antonio, is that they were both players who could be transformative in difficult circumstances. They weren't players that that received loads of ball in good areas in the final third and had lots of opportunities to impress. They were players that really had to scrap for their opportunities and had to work incredibly hard up top to create opportunities for themselves and others and i think that is the profile of player that we desperately need to be recruiting in in the number nine role i think there's a conversation to be had that we'll come to um, at the end of this section about a a more of a false nine type being a natural progression for david moise's system at at west ham we've seen just how well lucas pakatar has performed in glimpses as a number nine someone who's um decent in the air, can hold the ball up and can create chances for others. And I suppose really Gianluca Scamacca was seen as the answer to that um, going forward. But I think there is a gap initially where you need to fill it with someone who's more comfortable in terms of their hold-up play, their ability to make runs in behind and carry the ball, a Michel Antonio type. And then when you're looking for that false nine kind of player, as we'll discuss as we go through these players that we've identified, um, or that others have, uh, have have told us to look at, because I put a tweet out and asked lots of people um, 
who they'd like us to talk about. And, and, and there were lots of responses about, uh, about strikers and, and anyone that's not going to be in the striker conversation, fear not. We're doing another podcast on, on January targets and we'll be talking about all the other positions in, in that episode. Um, but yes, um, strikers that are going to be more of that force nine type, they're going to have to be physically comfortable um, and, and confident in the jewels and, and, and number one for me really want the jewels. And, and that brings us really that wanting the jewels that brings us to, to, to the three players that we've identified at the very top of our list uh, and think are good options up front for, for West Ham, the importance of hold up, the willingness to, to go into the jewels and being confident in them and controlling the center backs rather than letting the center backs control you. There are a lot of strikers who I've been watching when we've been going through this list who, evade contact and find creative ways to do so and then there are strikers that seek it and do well in those conditions and those are the guys that i think west ham could do well to invest in and number one top of the list it's going to be no surprise to to absolutely anybody um but having watched lots of strikers over the last few weeks we both thought sahu um girassi was just incredible um and yeah, Cal's going to lead this, so I'm going to hand over now. And there are a couple of players that that we'll go through when we do this, and I'll I'll, I'll input where possible. But um, but yeah, just just take us away, really, with Garassi. What an incredible season he's having, and what an incredible player he suddenly, and it's worth saying, suddenly um, <laughs> looks to be. Yeah, yeah, he's been absolutely fantastic, and I think, as you've said, I don't think anyone would have anticipated him taking such a leap forward this season. Um, I think last season he was good um, at Stuttgart and I think it made sense based on his form to bring him in um, permanently and the way he's kicked on is is just bonkers really. Um, And yeah, he's he's tearing the Bundesliga apart really. Um, He's amazingly considering how well we all know Harry Kane is, is doing over there. He's, uh, Garassi is actually leading the league uh, in terms of goal conversion rate. He, he is the best finisher in the league, um, which is, is quite the feat. Um, I think 37.7% of his shots have found the back of the net. So one in every three shots has been a goal, which is um, a, a crazy rate. And I think even just for a point of comparison for West Ham fans, Bowen has obviously been, as we all know, outperforming his expected goals this season. Um, only one in four of his shots have found the net. So Grassi is uh, is putting in extreme numbers. Um, and yeah, ranks uh, top of the league for expected goals per 90 as well. So testament to the positions that he's finding himself in um, and also fair play to his teammates for putting him, putting the balls into those positions for him and, and giving him consistently reliable delivery. Um, but as we know, <laughs> as we have seen with many West Ham strikers, you can get good delivery, but not necessarily score them as frequently as that. So yeah, I think that's the that's the top line assessment for Girassi. And to be fair, I think, like we said, it is surprising that he's hit this height. Um, but throughout his career, he's he's not been prolific, but he has consistently sort of either outperformed or performed in line with his expected goals output, um, whether that be at Rennes before, whether that be at Amiens before that. So he's always been a pretty serviceable, if not good, target forward, um, reliable as an outlet, very good at taking the ball down, using his uh, 6'3 frame to good effect, backing into defenders, holding up play, linking up play. Those are all things that we knew he could do well, and that's what made him a good player. But there was facets of his game that we hadn't seen that would really set him above the rest. And I think that's what's happened this year. He's landed on his... He's found a home, really, in Stuttgart at the minute and a system that really facilitates it. And the, the step up that we've seen, uh, at least for my mind, in terms of his reliability and possession, which I think is something that we've often criticised uh, Michael Antonio for, is that sometimes when he's doing the hold-up play, his touch is too loose and the ball evades him, or sometimes he makes the wrong decisions in the final third by trying to take on a man or playing the wrong pass when he should have shot, etc., etc. Um, but Girassi this season has has really honed this part of his game, and I think it's, uh, it's reflected in the data in, in regards to the fact that he is also... Um, compared to all strikers in the Bundesliga this season, uh, the best dribbler, the most successful dribbler, um, and also the most accurate passer. Um, So to my mind, that suggests that every time he is deciding to release the ball or every time he is deciding to take on his man, it's the right decision because he's not ranking in the top percentile for the volume of passes or the volume of dribbles he's doing. Um, But when he does do them, he pulls them off very well, which suggests that his decision-making in the final third is is exceptional. Um, And I think that is something that 
in a moist system where strikers are asked to feed off scraps essentially and make the most of the rare opportunities that they do receive the ball, you need someone who nine times out of 10 is going to make the right decision. And I think Gurassi has shown that this season. Um, and I think when you factor in the physical aspects of it alongside the reliable finishing, he really does just represent the complete package. I think the only thing that maybe he doesn't have um, in the same way that an Antonio does is the sort of receiving the ball on the halfway line, spinning his man and carrying you 40 yards towards the goal. I wouldn't be asking him to do that. This doesn't mean to say that he couldn't necessarily. He's very tall and he is fairly quick when he gets up to full speed because he's got very long legs. But I don't think he has that same sort of upper body strength, like muscle off a man on the move. I think in the box, he's very good at using his upper body strength to to lean in and hold off players. But I think when moving at pace, I think given that he is quite tall and I wouldn't say slight, but he's certainly not like big. I think it'd be quite easy for a defender to knock him off in his stride and barge him off the ball. So I think in that respect, that would be one area of improvement. But also at this stage in his career at 27, I'm not really going to be asking him to improve that. I'm just going to say, right, you've got all these strengths. Let's just play to them. And I think with all those strengths that we've just discussed, he'd be uh, yeah, the, the prime candidate to come in and, and really hit the ground running straight away. Yeah, I think the, one of the things that works really well for him is that when you're talking about adaptation periods or adaptations to the system, you know, Moyes is always saying when people ask him, are you looking for players or do you want to bring players in at West Ham? He's always saying, yes, we're looking for players, but it has to be the the, the right ones that can make an impact for us right now. And Garassi is one of those guys where you look at him and you, you think you probably don't need to adapt too much for him to play to a, to a, to a higher level in this West Ham team right now. He'd be comfortable playing up front for West Ham in the way that we play at the moment. So I think he he's an excellent shout. Obviously, as host, I must inform at this point that um, he has a release clause that is pretty low, if you're to believe uh, media reports, which should be a good thing. But it also means that because he's played so well, the list of clubs is practically everyone. I'm sure that literally every club anywhere is interested in bringing in um, Garassi or wants to bring in Garassi. Uh, to lead the line for them. So makes it a long line of clubs means that the wage demands are probably going to be absolutely insane because he has his pick of literally anyone. Um, so potentially a difficult one to land. He's obviously at AFCON at the moment, got a small injury um, as of now. Um, so for that reason, we started to look at the other players sort of similar mold ability to hold up the ball, really comfortable physically um, and, and more able to fulfill an Antonio esque role. And um, and we've got a budget option, which was very left field and came out of nowhere, um, and and one that, that that I think most people will be aware of as a as a more settled, yeah, this is the guy pick, and um, and that person is uh, Brian Brobby, um, who, yeah, if you're looking for Mikel Antonio, I think <laughs> what do they call it, Regens? Uh, yeah, this is the guy, surely. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Um, and I think it's, yeah, he's been on our radar for a while as someone that could sort of progress into that Antonio role, just even from sort of his physical profile. He's very similar height, very similar build in terms of having just insane upper body strength and um, very good pace. Obviously, Antonio's lost a bit of that, but if you think of him in his prime years under Moyes, he was electric on the counter. And I think Brian Brobby represents all of that. Um, I think when he first burst onto our radar a, a couple of years ago, when he was sort of in that sort of Ajax to Leipzig, back to Ajax phase, there was elements where we were kind of like, okay, let's just keep tabs on his development and see how he sort of technically de- like progresses in terms of finding corners, in terms of his movement in the box, etc. Because we knew that physically he ticked all the boxes, but we weren't quite sold on that yet. But I think this the form that he's displaying this season, and to be fair, last season, um, kind of just... Yeah, I mean, I'm convinced. Colour me convinced. Um, but yeah, I think he he just, yeah, he is, I think, the of all the players that we'll mention today, the the, the closest thing to an Antonio Regen that you can find. Um, 13 goals and three assists so far this season for Ajax. Um, and I think uh, stylistically, the way that he, I mean, he's so, he, he does so much more <laughs> than than just what Antonio does, I would say. But 
the way that he sort of even peels off into that left half space, drops in deep to receive, plays a little one-two and runs in behind to then get on the ball and run towards goal and either square it to an oncoming attacker, whether that be Bowen in a West Ham side, or just taking the shot on himself because I think he is a much more accomplished finisher and reliable finisher than Antonio um, ever was or or is now. And I think one of the main things that stands out for me and is, is something that we've used as a as a metric kind of to identify some of these people that might be able to take on the burden that Antonio carries uh, when he is fit in this side is just how many offensive duels that these strikers are uh, participating in within their sides. Obviously, the, the ones that are taking on um, more offensive duels suggest that they are the primary outlet for that side and they're happy with everything running through them. Um, and with Brobby, this is is very much the case. Um, he's in the 95th percentile in the Eredivisie this season for offensive duels uh, with 15 per 90, uh, which is a very similar number, actually. I think when Antonio was at his peak, it was about 16-ish. So very similar in terms of being the outlet, being the one to take it all on and allowing the attackers to come around him. And then he also has the sort of passing and, uh, and and movement to be able to create space for those attackers when they are in the final third. Um, and I think, yeah, when, when you roll that all into one package, like him being very happy to be the physical focal point, him having a lot of pace, him being able to take his man, and I think something that some of you might have seen on Twitter is the uh, the stiff arm approach. I won't mention the other descriptor that I accidentally used. Um, but if you do want to see that, go check out the, uh, the tweet. Um, but yeah, that sort of stiff arm that we associate with Antonio where despite him only being five foot 11, just being able to hold off six foot four centre-backs just by literally sticking his arm out because he's so strong. I think all of that rolled into one. Um, just yeah I think it just makes sense right it just makes sense like you could it's a plug and play option I would think even more so perhaps than Garassi in in respects of you could sit Robbie on the halfway line and let him run the entire length of the pitch in a way that Garassi couldn't yeah I completely agree even more so than than Garassi Robbie is is just kind of perfect for David Moyes I think he's so similar to Antonio in so many ways but just better at the things that Antonio isn't quite as good at and that and that's as Cal said the finishing and actually just reliability generally in possession I think Robbie's a little bit better at that side of his game as well what I love about him when I was watching him is just the way that he's smaller than a lot of the centre-backs that he's going up up against and he's just throwing people off like <laughs> so comfortably just backing in turning and just knocking people so people are falling off him mm-hmm. um and that is exactly the kind of player i think the west ham need the that just you know we've described antonio before as a vortex of chaos and Brobby is 100 percent that he brings that total chaos to the middle of the pitch and what that then allows to happen is it allows your players like bowen or kudas to really come to life because that they thrive in those conditions those chaotic transitional moments where players are out of position other players are trying to open compensate space is open in the wide areas there are chances to shoot from the edge of the box you're lots of opportunities to play people in behind because Robbie does a lot of kind of receive the ball, arms out, legs wide stance, back in, chest it. No centre back is going to get through him when he's doing that because he's so unbelievably strong. So, you know, you pull players therefore to him and then that creates space in behind for others. So, in so many ways, and as well as Cal said, his ability to turn and run down the flanks as well. So comfortable moving out to the left or right wing and receiving in those spaces too. He he's just pretty pretty remarkable, um, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know whether Ajax are getting tired of us. Uh, I know that there'll <laughs> be a long list of clubs that'd be interested in Robbie, but I, I'd love for us to just walk through that door one more time and say, yeah, we've had your two best players before. Can we have the current one as well? We'll just yeah, just keep keep the supply chain coming, lads. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think he he looks really really good. Um, obviously, he would he would cost quite a lot because of his performances this season and because of the number of clubs that I'm sure would be interested in him. Um, but he is one player I would be more than happy to see us spend a, a, a hefty chunk of change on because I think he would be a transformative signing and someone that could be around for a, for a long time for us as well. Um, if money is an issue, and it is for us because of FFP, and if we can't make sales to be able to fund a, a, a Brobby-esque signing, um, one guy that, that did come up, so, yeah, I'm, I'm going to say completely out of left field, really, on, on, on Twitter with, with links um, between us and, and his club, um, is Yanidis, a uh, Greek striker playing for uh, Panathinaikos. I 
going to be completely honest, I knew nothing about this guy until those those links surfaced, and um, have since tried to to get through through some games and, uh, and watch some footage um, of him. Now he's not quite as good as Gerasi is, or or, or as dynamic um, as as Brobie is, or imposing as as Brobie is. But what he is is a is a pretty handy striker who's performing a very very similar role um, to those two, and, and and actually does a lot of the things that that Mikel Antonio does for West Ham. Yep, yep, a hundred percent. And I think uh, the stiff arm, if there was a metric to go off by stiff arms per ninety, I think that would be very helpful for us and something that uh, Unidas would do very well in. Um, He's an interesting mould, actually. Like He's not, like you say, he's not as dynamic as a Brobby. He's not as quick as a Brobby. Um, but he's a bit taller. He's a bit more physical. Um, he's six foot two. But one thing that he is very good at is coming in deep to facilitate play, to link up. And I think it's interesting to consider him in the context of what you mentioned earlier about a false nine being a logical progression um, for a David Moyes system. And I think Unidas represents someone who can play as that focal point number nine because he has very good box awareness. He's good in the air. He's six foot two. He's a good finisher. Um, his movement, particularly when running across defenders towards the front post, is very instinctive. He's got a good range of finishes on both feet. So as a as a sort of outright number nine, he has a lot of that. Um, but as a centre forward, uh, sort of in a, I mean, if you were going to say the best example of modern era, probably a Benzema in the way that he drops in and facilitates the wingers and creates chances for them, but is also very capable of finishing his own chances. He shows a lot of this. I think his 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 knowingness of when to drop in um, to sort of receive the ball off a central midfielder and play balls in behind in a way that's not dissimilar, actually, to, to what Skamaka was very good at. Um, but what Skamaka wasn't very good at was the physical stuff, the box stuff, the the showing the urgency once he's dropped in to then burst back beyond the defender. Um, whereas Yanidis has that as well. So I think it's kind of a, it's an interesting profile in the sense that I, I haven't come across many players like it. I must admit, I haven't come across many players that can do both. Albeit in the Greek Super League, there is a, an obvious caveat with that. But a player that is showing ability equal parts ability to be a box number nine and a sort of false nine centre forward and I think if we're talking about that transition and a logical progression for Moyes to sort of pivot towards a false nine rather than this sort of target forward I think signing someone like Unidas on a relatively low risk transfer fee um, who could sort of bridge that transition by playing either one of those roles depending on the opposition depending on the system um and also i think given his skill set like i've said his sort of facilitation i think he would have been really handy to have yesterday in a front two um in terms of running off a striker using his intelligent movement to create space for his strike partner and i think having someone who can at least in my mind thrive in the number of systems when he's probably only going to cost maybe 10-ish million. Maybe it's gone up a bit because he's in the form of his life. He's got 16 goals and six assists. Um, but he's not going to cost any more than 15, I wouldn't think. And at that price, for someone who looks as though he could come in and do a number of jobs in a number of systems for us, I think it would be silly not to at least be uh, entertaining it. I think as well, I did see a rumour that Stuttgart had already identified him as a potential replacement for Girassi should Girassi go. So I think that maybe tells us that we're, that we're starting to sniff out some of the right names. Yeah, I, I I think he I, I think the only thing I'd add to that actually is is just that although he is performing really well in the Greek Super League and that may be a, a caveat when you're talking about him, he has also performed really well in the Europa yeah. League. The, yeah. the games that I was watching um, against uh, Ren uh, and Villarreal, he was a really impactful presence and both scored in both the games. Yeah. I, I watched he won won the penalty against Ren, which he then converted, all to do with his his physical hold up, his ability to spin in behind and just be a a bit of a nightmare to defend against. Uh, and then uh, the the goal against Villarreal was a really really finish. lovely finish. <laughs> Uh, fantastic movement and brilliant finish. So, um, yeah, I think he's a really interesting option. And if money, yeah, isn't there isn't much to spend, uh, I think he would be a, a really nice addition to the squad and someone that, yeah, can can stick around for a few years, help bridge the gap, like you say, and, and do a job for us. Um, if we can't quite go out and spend uh, loads on a on a big money transformative number nine. I recognise that we're slightly running out of time, so we're going to have to kind of speed through some of these next names. Um, and luckily, they're not names. We've done the three that we're really interested in, so we're now coming to three that, that lots of people wanted us to look at, but we're not quite so sure about. 
Um, so let's run through these really quickly. I'll give you my opinion to start on, on uh, the first of these, which is going to be Xerxy at uh, Bologna, was at Bayern Munich. Um, this guy is a really, really good footballer, but he's given me very intense Gamaka vibes. Um, at, yeah. In the sense that what I said at the top of this section was was pretty much that I'm really interested in strikers that want the contact, not strikers that find creative ways to evade it. And a lot of what I saw from Xerxes is that he has really sensational ability when he can evade that contact. When the contact comes from centre-backs, he's less of an impactful presence. He loses the ball a little bit too much. His hold-up's not particularly um, impressive. He also doesn't burst into the box with like huge speed after he's played a, a winger through. He's got fantastic link-up. He's going to be a really, really good player but he seems like the kind of guy that maybe would be better suited for a step to a different kind of um, system to a, under a different sort of manager playing a different style of football. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. I think the biggest red flag for me is the six foot four striker thriving in this area. That's only winning 34% of his aerial duels. It is big Skamaka energy. And I think all of his strengths are very similar as well. He's got lovely feet, um, got a great touch, got good movement inside the box, really good link up play. But I think he would thrive in a in a system that is going to play nice football and that's maybe going to spark a bit of a, uh, annoyance in West Ham fans that are listening to this that want us to play nicer football but frankly the situation we're in is we need someone who can come in and smash it in this system and I think Xerxes for all of his strengths um, is destined to go and play in a sort of yeah, uh, a sexy possession-based side where he can have these interchanges and link-ups um, he's not really going to get that at West Ham yeah and the next the next guy who 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 sort of comes out pretty similar for me although different because he's much more aggressive uh and he is much more physical is santiago jimenez this guy again looked like a great player uh has the ability to roll out wide and receive in those areas good movement really really clinical um around the box top player does he want the contact and when he gets it is he dominant i'm less certain yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. I think um, he's bar Girassi, the most informed striker, I think, in terms of goal scoring output this season um, that we would talk about. He's averaging more than a non-penalty goal a game. Incredible form, uh, massively outperforming his XG, as as he has done um, since being at Feyenoord, actually. So that's not really a concern. I think he is just an incredibly clinical finisher. Um facilitated in large parts by his movement in the box. He's averaging over six box touches per 90, which is uh, an incredible amount and talks to his spatial awareness and his ability to sort of get in between centre-backs. But I think you're right in, in he thrives when he is between the centre-backs, but when he's got a centre-back who's managed to get touch tight to him, he shies away a bit or his touch becomes a bit looser or he, he can't get his shot away in congested penalty areas. If he's, if he's getting pressed on the edge of the box, he's very good at shimmying the ball out at half a yard and getting a shot off and usually goes in but it's in those sort of tight jam-packed box scenarios that I think he gets a little bit lost and I think that if that's happening in the Eredivisie how is that transition gonna work into a David Moyes size who side who sort of prides themselves on being physical in the box you almost have to it's a right of passage to dominate the box it's how we play so if you've got a striker who has a tendency to go a little bit missing in the box when it's a physical battle, not when it's a late arriving run and getting on the edge of a cutback and leathering it into the bottom corner. I have no doubts that he could do that. But I'm just not sure that West Ham would create enough of those chances that he relishes, that he's getting regularly at Feyenoord under Arne Schlott, who we all know is an incredible manager. We don't play that style of football. We create very different chances to slot ball Um and yeah, I think Jimenez destined to go on and be a great European striker, I think. But again, another one that will benefit from playing in a top, top team who are regularly creating consistent high quality chances every week, week in, week out and have a lot of possession. It's just not us. Yeah, I think obviously Danny Ings is a completely different player, but we've had this conversation before, right? Guys that are clinical around the box and, and dominate in that way, but maybe aren't a dominant physical presence in the box. And and you see how much Ings has struggled at West Ham because of that. Um, and I could see him and as struggling similarly um, for similar for similar reasons, really lack of service and, and the kind of service that he really needs. Yeah. Um, it's worth saying at this point as well, before we move on to, to the last player in this section, is just that central progression is a big thing for these players. I mean, if particularly Xerxes, like I think I, I see him dropping off so much into central areas and receiving a sort of the 10 position. And um, I said to Cal when I was going through the footage, I was just like, 
which of our midfielders are playing these passes? Like, mm-hmm. Who's playing the passes that he's receiving? I don't see Will Prowse playing those passes. I don't see Suchek playing those passes. And I don't see Edson Alvarez playing those passes. So who's giving him that service? And then when he gets the ball in those areas, he might have that space and time in Serie A. But I always think of the of, of those situations in terms of like Christian Romero and Pierre-Emil Hoiberg at, at, at Spurs. They're always the players that jump to mind. And, and it's because just like you're going to have someone running to two foot you from midfield and you're going to have someone all over you from, from centre-back as well in the prime. You just don't get quite as much time. And um, and that's where I worry about these players. They're, they're really good. They're going to be really good players. They're going to ha- have really great careers. I just don't see them thriving at, uh, under David Boyes, as, as Cal has just said. Someone who who is more of the style and potentially could thrive in a David Moyes system is Akel Adams uh, at Montpellier. Um, goodness me, I was suffering when I was watching them trying to play football. Uh, <laughs> they are awful. Um, my issue here is consistency. The other yeah. guys that we spoke about at the top of this, Garassi, Brobby, Anidas, th- these guys are, are pretty consistent producers. Um, the efficiency of their actions are pretty good. Obviously, Anidas not quite as good as the two before him. But if you were looking for a budget option and the two of them were Anidas and Adams, you're looking at very different rates of efficiency between those two players. And Adams, there's a lot of it's something that people get frustrated with, Antonio, making good chances slightly worse and then maybe still getting away with it, but often struggling because of your touch or, or just not, not perfectly secure hold up or I don't know. It's difficult to assess him partly because of just how poor Montpellier are and yeah. how difficult it is for him to really create good situations. Um, but if that efficiency isn't quite there in exactly the kind of system that he's probably going to be forced to play in at West Ham, I, I worry about how that translates to a higher level where your efficiency is going to have to be reliable. Yeah, I think for me, Akar Adams is a is a wait and see. I think he's a keep him on the radar, but let's see how he gets on in Liga. And you've got to remember, he's only been there for less than six months. He arrived in the summer. He's scored seven goals in his debut campaign in France. Very impressive for someone so young. Um, I think on a physical level, I think he'd more than be capable of handling it. I think, like you say, from what we've seen in Ligue 1 at Montpellier, he's not necessarily shown it yet. But when he was playing at Lillestrøm in Norway, I think one of his biggest strengths was being able to receive a long ball, take it down, spin his man and run in a straight line and at a very high speed and then score. But he's not really getting those chances. And I think the step up in physicality and in the quality of defending has meant that there's been a quite long bedding in process. Completely understandable. He's still a very young player. And the fact, like I say, that he still managed to bag seven goals already this season is a very good sign. And I think it's it suggests that he's trending in the right direction for me. He he went from uh, Sondal, I think it was, where he scored um, a number of goals after moving over from his academy to there. And then Lillstrom bought him and then he was very prolific at Lillstrom uh, in a very short space of time. And then Montpellier bought him and he's come over and scored seven goals straight away. So to me, the fact that he's he's taking those steps up and maintaining that form after a little bit of betting in is great. But I think what you've what you've rightly raised is that if I'm looking for someone to come in and do the Antonio job, it's not enough to just come in and be Antonio. I don't want to buy someone and go, okay, cool. You can come in. Your your touch can be shit. Your passing can be wayward. No, I'm going to buy someone who can do what Antonio does, but also needs to improve on the things that he's not that good at. Otherwise, what's the point? Let's just keep Antonio. Um, And I think the fact that Akor Adams, at the minute is ranking in the the bottom 10% in terms of his pass completion. That sort of security and possession, when you're not getting that many opportunities, is going to frustrate me because you can't be a very... We've seen it so many times when we've not been our best. You can't be a high-functioning counter-attacking team if, when you receive the ball, the pass that you play off nine times out of ten goes back to the opposition because then you just can't break through. You're, you're facing wave after wave of attack and unless you can get that link-up like we've seen with Kudus, Pakitar, Bowen, etc., it needs to be sharp. And I'm not saying that he can't do that. I think he probably can, actually. I think he will go on to have a very good career, I think, just at the minute, to bring him in where we need someone to come in and really hit the ground running and and play a fairly pivotal part straight away, ideally. Um, I think that would be a lot of pressure to mount on him. I think maybe in the summer, if he has a great end to the season, or maybe next summer, I would come back and look at how he's developed and then maybe pull the trigger. Because what I saw at Lillstrom, if you could guarantee that he would carry that form straight over to the Premier League, I'd buy him in a heartbeat because he did all the right things, the carrying, the hold-up play. It's worth mentioning that despite him only being in France for a while, he really has taken to the target forward situation more than any other striker in the league. He's receiving successfully the highest proportion of long passes. So in that respect, he can take it down. It's just 
there's not enough consistency in what he does after that at the minute. Yeah, I think I completely agree. And, 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 you know, we said earlier about how Brobby popped up on our list and it was more of a wait and see for a couple of years before we were really convinced. And I think Adams is maybe in a bit of a similar place. He's popping on up on the list. He's made uh, huge strides in terms of his development over the last um, couple of seasons. Um, it's, it's, he's not at the level yet where I would be comfortable, you know, dropping 10 million and saying, right, slot into West Ham and, and see how you get on. I think needs a little bit bit more time just yet um and 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 just to wrap up we've got a wild card option he was our wild card option when we did this chat on um on hammers chat on youtube we, we we've had a had a conversation with charlie there about strikers that we're looking at and um he doesn't fit into either of those two categories we've spoken about he's currently playing at afcon for egypt he's coming off the bench for them um he can play off the left he can play up front I really like this guy. He's been near the top of our list for for a very long time now it feels like. Um Omar Marmouche. Why does he not fit into either of those categories and why are we still really excited about him? Yeah, I mean, yeah, excited is maybe even an understatement for me, but you have to you have to view him in a different context. Um it's easy to think that he maybe would be able to do the job as a striker because of the numbers he's putting up. Um, he's six foot, so you automatically think, oh, he could probably do a job. Antonio is only 5'11", um, and he's putting up similar carrying numbers. But when you break the numbers down and, and match it up with the eye test, you realise very quickly that a lot of the success that he's had having is actually out in this left half space quite a lot of the time he's rotating between being a left winger and a striker um, or when he is playing up front he's sometimes joined by a partner so I think him as a lone number nine is not the trajectory or the the development pathway that I see him going on and I don't see that as being where he has his greatest success as a footballer in his career and I think it's worth saying that I do think he will go on to be very successful Um, I think the reason we're excited is that there is another gap within our squad at the minute for an attacker that can do a serviceable, if not very good job on either flank, being that sort of second option to Bowen as the sort of dynamic, direct wide player when the other wide player is the creator like a Paquetar. Um, and I think Marmouche can thrive in this. Um, I think what's really interesting that maybe someone like Akudus, um doesn't have is that Marmouche... Uh, like we said, he's he's a bit slight to be that lone number nine, but he's also ranking in the 96th percentile for aerial duels. So he is good at battling those aerial duels, but it's where the aerial duels are taking place. It's not the same taking down a long ball out on the left flank against a small fullback as it is going up in an aerial duel against a six foot four centre-back. Very different battle. But if you're playing a long ball out into the flanks, like we do when we try and hit Kudus to spin him on the break, I think having Marmouche out there is a sort of, almost a wide target man, almost, but also with blistering pace and the ability to take on his man, I think is really exciting. Um, and when he's in front of goal, I mean, his finishing's, his finishing's very good. Um, it's, uh, I think he, when he hits the target, he finds the corners very regularly, but occasionally he has the way with shots that don't hit the target. So what, he's young. Um, but yeah, I think as a sort of dynamic profile that could feasibly do a job on both the right or the left or if you want he can come in and do this sort of false nine job in the future that we've talked about progressing towards I think he's a very useful player to bring in in that his hold-up play and his sort of rotations around the box particularly when he gets onto the ball in sort of zone 14 in that sort of uh, the edge of the area he receives the ball and is able to quickly spot runners in behind and feed them through or he's able to play it into the feet of an on-running centre mid who can take a long shot or then play the ball out to the fullbacks and then in that time Marmouche has spun and made a run in towards the box to try and get onto the end of the cutback I think that's really exciting I don't think that's necessarily how we play at the minute with our number nines as we've discussed but I think it's where we should be heading and I think in that time there's a job that he can do out wide while we go towards that point and in that time as long as it takes us to get there he'll be developing in a David Moyes system learning what David Moyes expects of him we've seen what Moyes can do with wingers that turn into strikers already with with Arnautovic with Antonio even so I think Marmouche maybe more than any of the names that we've said in terms of being someone that I really think we should buy because I think there's there's a there's a clear pathway for him as a dynamic wide forward that could be translated into a false nine in the future um, with the right coaching. I think he could come in and be a very, very, very good squad player for us straight away with a seriously high ceiling if we manage his minutes and his development well. Um, and I think, yeah, maybe not as the number nine, but like we said, there is also a need to replace a Ben Rama type. Um, 
but with a Bowen mould. And I think Marmouche can do that. He can play out on the left, but he can be as prolific as a Bowen out on the right. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm really, really excited about Marmouche. He's obviously going to cost a bit because he's moved to Frankfurt now and, and he's doing really well. Um, but I, I think, you know, if, if you were talking to David Moyes and you were talking about players that you were really excited about, you'd, I'd, I'd be saying there's your Bowen project, there's your Antonio project, there's your Anatovic project. There is your winger who you yeah. can work with and bed in over time in that role and then move into the middle and where all those guys previously maybe not Arnautovic, but the other two have maybe lacked a little bit of that ability to drop off and combine and and, and want to make runs in behind at all times. Marmouche is your guy that can do both. So yeah. in terms of developing your system going forward, you don't just have to plonk a false nine in and hope for the best like you did. You know, Skamaka's not a false nine, but he ended up playing like one because he wasn't physical enough to really lead the line as a, as a target man. Um, so instead of having to deal with that kind of situation where you lose a little bit of physicality, you can bet him in over time. And then when he's ready, when he's physically ready, when you're confident that he's ready, you can move him into the center of the pitch and enable two really you know high-level wide players like Bowen and Kudus. Or if you've got Pakatar still in the team, him, out wide combining with Marmouche deeper and, and Bowen and Kudus going beyond or whoever you, else you bring in and Marmouche like you said he'll spin and go beyond too because he's got pace he's got finishing ability so you know we started this talking about Bristol City and saying that maybe one attacker makes a really big difference to, to that group of players um, where you have a more clinical direct presence in, in the B string of players if there was anyone that I was looking at, I'm really, really keen on because it's funny in a way because we've looked at wingers. We keep looking at wingers, don't we, Carl? We keep going, ah, there's not really many people here that we're we that found exci- <laughs> excited about. Well, here's a striker. You do the opposite. You make him back in, turn him back into a winger only to turn him back into a striker further down the line. So yeah, Marmouche is the guy for me. I think he's perfect for that role and a really, really good option for David Moyes he's- that would totally work in the way that we play. He's also just, uh, just in terms of an even more perfect fit. He's also drawn more fouls than any striker in the Bundesliga this season. So if you're talking about someone that can come in and and make the most out of a Moyes system with James Ward-Prowse, Suchek, Mavropano, Zuma, get him on, get him winning fouls in and around the box, get Ward-Prowse whipping him in, and you're maximising the strengths of a Moyes system as well as offering a hell of a lot more. Um, so yeah, for me, Mamouche high on the list, and yeah, I really, really hope he's high on the list of West Ham as well. Fantastic. I think this was a great episode. Thank you so much, Carl, for all of your effort on, on these players over the, the last few weeks. And um, and please do, if you listen to this pod and, and you've got a couple of players that you would like us to talk about when we come to talking about the other positions in the, in the next edition of the, the January window pods at Analytics United, um, please do let us know on Twitter um, or email uh, us, which you can access through the website. So again, visit the website. And um, and yeah, thank you for tuning in. Thanks, Carl. And, uh, and we'll catch you in a week's time. Sports Social Podcast Network.